Tight Study Buddies, episode 22, the big choo-choo. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, Cameron. I'm Michael. I, we used to have uh, a catchphrase that, that I said at the top, and then we just stopped doing that. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're if you're 22 episodes in, then you already know the catchphrase. And if you're just jumping in at episode 22, you've got to know what this show is about. So it's why why would we explain it? Mm. The social is defined by its exclusions, of course. Yes, yes, um, naturally. Uh, if you're not familiar with the show, um, if you are just jumping into episode 22, that's perfectly fine. We uh, this is a show where Michael and I read. Uh, books of game studies, and we talk about them. Uh, it's designed to be uh, listened to by uh, game studies academics and by people who uh, think games are interesting and by game developers and anyone who just might have an interest in learning what's going on in the game studies. We're kind of summarizing and talking about the book all at one time. It's like sitting in a grad seminar with the two of us, and it would it probably gives you a pretty good uh, sense of how uh if you would like that or not (laughs) (laughs) specifically if you would like to be in a grad seminar with just the two of us Uh uh-huh yeah um you know it's a it's a real uh, it's a perfect tester before you uh go and join our graduate school um (laughs) range touch university so uh range touch university of uh, Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> we had to Moines. we had to get somewhere that was like uh, you know middle distance between us, which turned out to be Des Moines, Iowa. Mm-hmm. You got to triangulate it, and uh, but yeah, so so we're just gonna today we are, are talking about uh, Alinda Chang's uh, playing nature, ecology, and video games. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty hefty book, Michael. You read it on the Kindle, but I read it in a paper copy, and uh, it's about about three hundred pages, a little bit shorter, three hundred pages. So so uh, a fairly long book, um, and uh, yeah, do you do you have the, are you the keeper of the biographical information today, Michael? Uh, yeah, sure, um, I can be. So Alinda Chang is currently an associate professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies at UC Santa Barbara, um, and she's a fairly early career academic, uh, but. Uh, she's published, let's see, this is the, just, just the list, uh, in Ant Spider Bee, Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and the Environment, uh, the Journal of Gaming and Virtual Worlds, and Ecozona. I'm not mm-hmm. exactly sure how we how we want to say that because the, the last uh, character is actually the at symbol. Um, mm. Anyway, <laughs> she has a she has a multidisciplinary background in biology, literature, and film, uh, and that comes across very much in this particular book, uh, mm-hmm. which is about kind of those three things. Less so about film, actually. There's mostly like biology, literature, and video games, um, mm-hmm. obviously, because of this uh, this podcast. Um, but yeah, that book, uh, Playing Nature, is her first book, uh, and it came from uh, University of Minnesota Press last, like, November or December in 2019. The, uh, and, and you know, just some kind of context, um, Linda Chang is kind of like the name in game studies around ecology. Um, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're writing about ecology and things like that in, in uh the year of our lord 2020 um and you know you're looking through bibliographies and things like that you are going to find people uh who are 
either directly citing her or working with her ideas or in conversation with her or, or things like that. Um, and so I think the book was hotly anticipated because of that, right? Because she is kind of the, uh, one of the very few people writing about ecology in, in a lot of different senses, um, in, in game studies. Mm -hmm. And I say, that's a weird, that's a weirdly vague statement in many different senses, ecology, (laughs) uh, but it'll come up in the book is the reason I say that, of course, not to go without saying our good friend Ben Abraham also writes on ecology. Um, and that's actually how I was introduced to Linda Chang's work is reading Ben and and then uh, uh, Darshana Jayaman's piece on uh, climate fiction and games um, or the relationship between climate fiction and games. They deal really heavily with her work in that. And uh, that's how I was introduced to her work originally. So shout out to, uh, you know, chasing down your bibliography um, and doing that kind of stuff. Shout out. Shout out. To doing the work. <laughs> um, but but before we decide to read this for the book, no, you know, uh, had you ever read any of her work before or anything like that, Michael? I had not. I wanted to read this. I was the one who put this forward to read, um, mostly because I was interested in uh, the where what it was going to do. Right. Mm-hmm. The one of one of my goals for this podcast is kind of to get a, a range of orientations towards sort of the central object of game studies uh and we haven't we haven't read a book about uh eco criticism in video games yet uh because this is kind of maybe the first one to exist uh in in that explicit sense so i i was like hey why don't we read that yeah i think it might be the first mono you know please someone correct us on twitter if i'm wrong but i i'm having a hard time coming up with another one that specific that is specifically and I, I love that you're kind of introducing this term uh that is around eco criticism do you, do you have a back of the uh you know uh, back of the envelope definition of eco criticism for us uh sure thing um how i would define eco criticism would be uh any kind of uh view of academic study so in the same way that uh you know such and such a scholar might be considered a uh feminist scholar or this scholar uh might be a deconstructionist Uh, that's a little hazier because deconstruction is usually associates there are some theories that are associated with like very specific thinkers um eco-criticism is uh more a descriptor of scholars and academics and researchers who are interested in looking at cultural objects from the perspective of environmentalism um and ecological studies uh this might be you know in terms of let's say like what, what, what you might think right kind of green movements sustainability um things like that it may also encompass uh animal studies uh and uh various sort of like ethical questions that are entailed by not only the consumption of the raising and consumption of animals but uh you know stewardship of the environment uh it can uh as as this book does touch on kind of the the weird divisions between humans and non-humans uh and things of that nature uh, not to say that like uh Ecocriticism excludes other questions uh, that you might associate with academic scholarship. So, for instance, there can be ecocriticism that looks to questions of gender in ecology or race in ecology. Uh, really, what ecocriticism signifies is taking all of these academic preoccupations and threading them back into that question of the environment and ecology. Mm-hmm. 
and and really coming out of like uh you know, I think that in literary studies in particular, there's always been a attention to that, especially, you know, you get uh, romanticism and then on mm-hmm. down, right, a pretty consistent um, set of literary strains, right, especially, well, in the Anglophone world, I, you know, that's, I, right. that's really all I can speak to. But, uh, you know, in the Anglophone world, we have a pretty strong writing about the relationship to nature in the, the kind of poetry and uh, fiction world. And then you end up with, uh, you know, people who are making their career out of that. And so I think there's a strong lineage to, you know, Mm -hmm. this is not unlike deconstruction, right? Which appears, you know, kind of plops (laughs) out, you know, plops out of the existence of a couple key figures. Uh, Eco-criticism, right, speaks to a a big approach. Right. Well, and as as like the introduction of this book shows by invoking Thoreau, uh, there is like in many ways in literary studies, eco-criticism is kind of a reactivation of a uh, historical concern. Like, cause people have always been writing poetry about trees and stuff, right? Like we love always, it. <laughs> right. Uh, like there has been a strong concern and preoccupation with, uh, with the environment in literature. Uh, mm-hmm. and then of course we get kind of the environmental movement in the seventies, which, uh, politicizes, uh, writing about nature in a certain way that mm-hmm. it maybe hadn't been before. And then eco-criticism kind of takes the, the the strength of contemporary theory and melds all of these things together. Well, uh, in, in a move that, that can only be described as masterful, you've already invoked the uh, the introduction of the book. So do you want to just move us right in here? We, we the, the book begins with Walden. And I wrote down mm-hmm. in my notes the heresy of Walden the video game. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So uh, the the obvious question, if you've listened to this little uh, potted definition of eco-criticism, uh, clearly, if literature, if poetry has been concerned with landscapes and thinking about landscapes and our relationships to our landscapes and that sort of thing, uh, how the heck does that match up with what's going on in video games, which very often don't seem to care one whit about environment uh beyond certain very limited kind of capacities um so chang begins uh talking about the walden video game that was mm-hmm. made by i don't know who because i did not write it down uh, uh i believe it's tracy fullerton at usc right uh, uh yeah 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 okay, yeah. yeah so uh, tracy fullerton director of the game innovation lab at the university of southern california Mm-hmm. So this was the bicentennial, I think, of uh, Henry David Thoreau going out and you know doing his his experiment in uh, sort of simple living at Walden Pond. Uh, if you are not a person uh, who got this drilled into your head in like an American middle school, uh, mm-hmm. Henry David Thoreau is part of the transcendentalist movement in New England. This is a uh, sort of loosely connected. Not actually very. Some of them are more loosely connected than others. Some of them are very good friends of American poets uh, and writers and essayists in the 19th century around uh, Boston, uh, Massachusetts, and they're the transcendentalists are kind of a an outgrowth of the European Romantic movement. Uh, the Romantics, of course, are people like uh, Shelley and uh, Byron and so on and so forth. Uh, who evince a very strong concern with environments and revi- environments as uh, sort of emotional supplements or outgrowths of, of the human, um, but also 
barriers to the human. The, the, the key thing to keep in mind in sort of historical arguments about the Romanticists is that they are reacting to the increasing industrialization of the world, um, industrialization and urbanization. So the Transcendentalists, uh, their peculiar, peculiarly American spin on this is to kind of found a, a new sort of philosophy about uh, what it means to live authentically. Mm -hmm. And Thoreau goes out and he lives in a cabin on Walden Pond, uh, and he keeps a journal. And the the sort of mythology around this event, of course, is right, is that he just like he he goes off the grid in modern terms. He he goes away from the city and he goes off and he lives in this cabin and he just like keeps this diary where he uh, you know goes on his daily walks and writes about ants that he saw. Uh, Ants always return. Uh, we're always talking On about drugs. what ants are up to. Yeah. Um, and of course, like, there are people who uh, problematize this kind of narrative because we find out his mom came by once a week and did his laundry <laughs> mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. I think he um, was fed regularly by other people, too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so anyway, kind of for his uh, the bicentennial of this experiment, they make uh, the Walden game. Or Walden the Game. I don't remember the precise title, uh, but it is a walking simulator version of Thoreau's experience. Um, and Chang, uh, situating this in kind of the the history of the transcendentalist and the Romantic movement, says this feels like this. You know, uh, at first blush, this probably feels like heresy because the transcendentalist, like the the entire thing Thoreau was trying to do, was literally get back to nature. <laughs> uh, mm. like he was trying to uh, return to, to some sort of ground that uh, existed outside of the arbitrary, uh, increasingly technological uh, outgrowths of human civilization. So as Chang says, this should this probably feels like heresy if you know anything about this guy and his work and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but here's, here's the catch. Chang uh -oh. argues, what if... It were not heresy. What if, in fact, uh, games, rather than being uh, kind of their own sort of uh, elevation or, or escalation of our obsession with technological gigaws, which we, you know, this is that that's a kind of like vulgar argument that we could be familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. uh, all these kids today playing all their dang video games uh, locked in their in their rooms. Um, what if games actually? had some sort of ecological bent to them what if games had Whoa. potential for ecological thinking within them and in fact the walden game uh was following through on some of that yeah that that's that's the core of the book mm -hmm. right that um uh, that what what that what uh thoreau gets at walden can be replicated in important ways by a video game experience of nature and the environment. Mm -hmm. And then we have to be attentive to all kinds of other things, right? In the same way that we got to be attentive to the context of the experience at Walden, we got on, on Walden Pond, um, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we got to be attentive to the experience of, or, or uh, not just the experience, but the design of, and the uh, implementation of, and the like, kind of affective connection um, of uh, the moment to moment of that thing, 
of the experience of playing the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the precise quote I'll just pull out here so you can uh, get it in Chang's own words. Uh, Games can offer a compelling way to reconcile a deep connection to nature and the non-human world with an equally important connection to technology and the virtual. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're actually, so that's on page five and there are a series of other like little quotations here that I found interesting. Um, uh, she says the book here is is on page two. The purpose is to articulate a new rationale for digital environmental play. So this is literally like a new way of thinking about the relationship between uh, humans and games. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, page six, the book, like the purpose of the book is, quote, to take seriously the idea of an ecology of gaming. So it's not just uh gaming ecology right so it's not just like we need to play sim world and that's like going to solve <laughs> all our problems right and that's going to like resolve it it's that there is an ecology of game experiences right that's gonna shake out in a lot of different ways over the course of this book um but that we need to to look at that kind of big broad set of relationships um rather than um you know rather r- rather than like allow one example to kind of become the thing that stands in for everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we might think about the ludosphere. Mm-hmm. Thinking of last episode, the Celia Pierce episode. We might think of ludic leakage. One could say that this is a whole book of ludic leakage. It absolutely is. I uh, uh, I now deeply want to write an essay that's called like, uh, you know, like ludic leakage colon uh, uh, the toxic waste of video games. It's like, <laughs> it's like bad forms of ludic leakage. Yes. You know what I mean? So like, oh, when, you, when you're pissed off because you're losing a video game and you're like, you know, in a bad attitude or in a bad mood and uh, or like you uh, like throwing controllers and punching holes in drywall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like these things. You know what? No one steal that. <laughs> <laughs> I just need like original three, idea. Do not steal. Yeah, exactly. OC. Do not steal. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, in like four or five years, I will definitely get that out the door. Um, uh, but yeah, but yeah. So so there are a couple. This introduction here, you know, lays that out. I think you laid it out really great, Michael. Um, and then kind of introduces some additional key terms uh, out of ecological science ecology the study of ecology i'm I, hard to know for me exactly like the you know where these terms come from initially but certainly positioned that way mm-hmm. um so anthropogenic anthro <clears throat> I, I get so choked up about them. <laughs> uh anthropogenic biomes or anthromes mm-hmm. do you know what those are well, uh, anthromes are to to kind of like set the to make this clear. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> a lot of contemporary eco criticism and uh, ecological thinking is dedicated to pushing back against a kind of quote unquote common sense division that a lot of people have between uh, sort of nature and whatever the heck we want to call things people do, right? Civilization or what have you. Mm-hmm. So the, the the general thing, well, it's, it's, it's the Thoreau idea that, um, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm also getting choked up now. Mm. Ecology. Or the, Ecology. Na- the naive view of nature. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, the naive view of nature is what this is often called. So 
it is it is the quick read of the Thoreau idea that like oh I need to get back like I need to get back to nature because I've been living in town for too long mm-hmm. so I'm going to go live off in in the wilderness um, where things are untouched right things are still in their natural state which is uh, presumed to be whatever state things were in before people showed up, before people mm-hmm. started doing things. And it's unclear at what point people doing things actually changes nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where this idea of anthropogenic biomes or anthromes uh, makes its kind of incision into this argument. Um, there is not really uh, a good... There, it, it doesn't make sense to say that, well... If some animals live off in the woods on their own, they are living in a biome, or they are living in nature, they are living in something naturally occurring, um, whereas uh, all the animals that live in our cities, uh, you know, rats and uh, urban foxes and pigeons and anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those the things, three animals. Yes, the three animals that, all, that we all know and love, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, mm-hmm. they are not living in nature, right? That do, it doesn't make sense to make that division because those animals, and including people, right, are still doing the things that we would do in nature, looking for food, breeding, finding places to rest, so on and so forth. So anthromes um, are a term that she derives from to... I, I don't know uh, where these particular folks come from, if they're like ecological scientists or whatever, but their names are Ellis and uh, Raman Kuti. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, quote, ridding ecology of the antiquated but persistent notion of our environment as, quote unquote, natural ecosystems with humans disturbing them. Instead, as they explain, quote, anthropogenic biomes tell a completely different story, one of, quote, human systems with natural ecosystems embedded within them. So what happens, right, in this view is that when we build a city and, uh, Nature continues to happen in that city. Animals continue to live there. The same air that flows through the woods flows through the city. Uh, it gets particles picked up into it and goes across the the, the sea to elsewhere, right? Uh, there is actually a kind of, uh, like, biome, like, a, a, a an, not artificial, right? That's that's the kind of language we want to get, get away from. Mm-hmm. Um, a new sort of, like, sub-biome gets formed that then has a kind of reciprocating effects on the larger environment around mm-hmm. it. So um, that's, that's kind of what's uh, being got at there. Yeah, so like you know, like a like a solid example, right? Is think of any waterway that you see inside of a city, right? So you know, think of any creek or river that's running through a city, and and think of the kind of life that you see on it, right? A waterfowl and and whatnot, frogs, perhaps, perhaps a turtle or two, <laughs> um, um, and think about the relationship that obviously those creatures have to one another, and that they have to the people who are around them, and all the trash that those people are throwing in, or all the food that they're throwing in there, and then think about the fact that those birds go other places, and those turtles go other places, um, and other st- species predate on them, or they poop, or whatever, right? There is a... Um, uh, you know, we can almost think of it like a, like a bullseye, right? A kind of a series of effects that, that ripple out from that. And those are all obviously in relationship to the effect that human beings have on that, that area. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the, it is its own uh, 
ecological system, right? But it's just one that's deeply in conversation with, with human beings. And I think that the argument probably extends a little bit further, too, in the sense of in the same way that the—I I was talking about this on the Discord the other day, right? In the same way that the Anthropocene um, uh, names a system in which human beings have produced enough uh, greenhouse gases, you know, in order to change the, the, the you know, global climate— um, uh, anthropogenic biomes or anthromes name a system in, in which uh, there is no way of thinking nature, quote unquote, without its relationship to humanity um, or without uh, really dealing with the effects that human beings are or the pressures that human beings are uniquely putting on those things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this could just be a way of like regrounding anthropocentrism, right? Like, oh, you know. It turns out we zoomed out far enough and we found out that human beings are at the center of all things on, <laughs> in the universe. Weird enough. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe that's true. I don't know. Maybe human beings are at the center of all things. Is that 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 was kind of an anticlimax to where I thought you were going to go? Well, okay, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe that's true. I don't, you know, I yeah. think that there's there's a um, there's a tension in the book where, especially, I think what chapter three is called non-human. Yes. There, there is a tension that is inherent in the book that I did not read get solved. Uh, and I don't think this is a problem. I think it's a productive thing to think about where um, m- these kind of uh, 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 microclimates or anthromes or, 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 or uh, like microbiomes, uh, anthromes, whatever, that those things are inherently in relationship to the human and the human experience and to human effects on the world in whatever mm-hmm. way that we want to position that whether it's digital or whether it's you know in in the uh in the dirt so to speak um so there is that but at the same time um we need to be thinking about how to decenter that or to think about systems beyond that and i don't know quite how i staple those two, two things together in the sense of um which there are arguments in the book made for one for each being more important than the other Mm-hmm. I don't know how to square those those two arguments together. Again, I don't think it's a problem. I think that's an, a kind of a core issue in ecology in a broad sense, right? Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate the weight with which cer- certain actors in an ecology bend that ecology to their will, right? So if I dig up every piece of grass in my yard and I plant corn there, um, I don't know why I do that, but if I did do that... <laughs> you just uh, love corn. Would, I just, you know what? I love corn. You know, uh, call me Matthew McConaughey because I love corn. Uh, I'm willing to go to the ends of the universe for corn. Uh, but uh, if I did that, that I would obviously there's a, a, a whole micro um, uh, uh, micro ecological situation in my yard. Like that's a thing. There are bugs and there there are plants and there are things like that. But as a human being, I have a, a near infinite amount of power of how to impact that. As opposed to, I don't know, a wood beetle, which cannot <laughs> replace my whole yard with corn, right? So, um, you know, there, there's something about, on one hand, we need to have uh, tools for thinking through the, the life process of the wood beetle and how we might uh, preserve it. But on the other hand, only I can create uh, the corniverse, what I'm calling the corniverse, <laughs> um, in my yard. So, um <laughs> 
join the corniverse yeah. in order to gain insight into exciting extended corn continuities. <laughs> it's a it's a blind box service. <laughs> like ninety nine percent of them uh, just have corn in them, but one of them has a wood beetle. So uh, it also costs seventeen dollars a month. So if you're into that, that's part of our twenty twenty plans as a thing. But anyway, that was a long uh, a long time of us talking about ecology. But those are some of the kind of um, not problems, but just like uh, issues at hand here with the book that, that they're interesting, uh, that, that Chang is interested in deploying. And then all kind of goes to, uh, we're 29 minutes and we've made it to page 10. But uh, it all goes to um, this quote I have on, on page 10, which I think is useful. Uh, so she's talking about ecology as like a method or as a, as a useful heuristic or a useful way of asking questions um, uh, academically. And it's... Uh, uh, quote, to displace our existing understandings of games, players, and play contexts using a vital and widely accessible framework for describing interaction across species, scalar levels, and ontological categories. Sorry for my pause in the middle there. I mistranscribed this, but I'm 90%, oh, okay. 90% right. That I, I have an A instead of an and, but I think it's and there. Um, but but right, so this is kind of a defensive method. Ecology here is a big cohort of different ways of thinking about relationships and using that as a way of approaching games. Yes. So 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 if they're you know if they if you're thinking about you know we're half an hour in, if you're thinking about what's the big takeaway from all of this stuff, it's that ecology itself and ecological thinking and what you were saying earlier, Michael, eco criticism, you know, as mm -hmm. a broader uh, idea that those things provide a unique method for analyzing and thinking about games, particularly digital games. Mm -hmm. Well, and to make this kind of explicit, to, to just like fold back and talk about the example we've pulled in uh, first, the, the Thoreau game, as I said, it's a walking simulator. Uh, and what it simulates is you being Thoreau alone in the woods, walking around your cabin and going for walks. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, that might seem very, very boring if that's not the sort of thing that you're interested in. Uh, but it like in in uh, recreating that experience as a digital game, um, certain concerns of Thoreau's have been brought to the forefront and have been uh, systematized or made into a kind of, shall we say, procedural rhetoric uh, <gasps> where you can walk around through the woods right and look at the things that would like sort of simulations of the things Thoreau would have looked at and done what he did which was walk through the woods and think about the things that he was looking at which mm -hmm. is all uh you know from Chang's perspective and from the perspective of the folks who made the game um part of that ecological project is just like looking at it seeing it and being uh in a position where you have really no other choice but to think about it right that's the verb that you have so anyway this this all brings us uh to kind of uh the first chapter which we'll probably talk about um maybe a bit more extensively so to give you an idea of how this book kind of works and how it is structured uh we have we have outlined for you what is kind of the the core claim which is that there is uh some sort of ground to be established between uh, video games as representations of ecological situations and as as uniquely capable of being uh, uniquely capable of representing ecological situations with a kind of sophistication and complexity that 
other things cannot do, right? By, by the virtue of being sort of simulations or having computers behind them, digital games uh, can put us into contact with ecological modes in ways that a poem cannot. Um, and then the rest of the book is just like a proliferation of looking at the ways that you might like think of the ecology or the ecological thinking behind a game. Um, and this sort of the, the, one of the quotes that gets, uh, that I'm going to, that I pulled out here, right. Is that there are kind of two ways of thinking about games and the world. Uh, Chang, this is a quote from Chang game as debased copy game as Mm -hmm. artful imitation. She does not go here. I don't know why, but this is the like, you know, founding uh, sort of debate of of art criticism dating back to Plato. I'm being ironic here, right? I don't think she actually has to go back to Plato here, but that's what strikes me is that what is driving this book is a very, very traditional, um, and I don't mean that negatively, right? A a very old concern, which is to what degree uh, does art impact our relationship to reality in good ways or bad ways? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a formative question of aesthetics, right? Mm-hmm. What what is the uh, political or ethical component that that necessarily follows from aesthetics, or is there one? Um, yeah, I agree. Very very old problem. Um, but I, I, there there's something interesting here too about that because since it isn't couched that way necessarily in in, in kind of a broader um, in that broader language. I think it's harder to read it as a book about aesthetics, but but yes. I think I think you're pointing out exactly uh, uh, like a really good point here is that fundamentally it is about I I think questions of aesthetics and politics and and where I think this book I I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because it gives me the ability to say like a weird thing that doesn't really fit anywhere else I, I don't think in in the book. This book is much more, like significantly more in conversation for me with media studies more broadly than game studies specifically. Mm -hmm. And I say that not because, weirdly, of the citational apparatus or anything like that. This has a lot of uh, citations to game studies. And what I really appreciate about this book is it is not a book that... um, just kind of goes about its way and is like, oh yeah, well, this is what the big book in the field said, and here's the other big book in the field, and and like kind of goes on based on its examples and then like big pillars of the of of game studies, right? Um, it's very easy to write that way, and lots of people in fields do it. I, I think in game studies, there there's less of it than there are in in other fields of of just being like well um you know here's uh what wjt mitchell said you know this big book with thousand citations or here's what foucault said and then now i'll do my argument i think chang does a really good job of engaging in the in very kind of specific and nitty-gritty ways with uh journal articles uh with blog posts all kinds of things that i think are maybe a little bit closer to the ground of how people are experiencing these things which is great you know Mm -hmm. no Um, there is a there is a bevy of different types of evidence in this book right it she doesn't just talk about games uh she talks about i mean there's there's a lot of literature in here right there's a lot of literary criticism that shows up in this book yeah and well, which is very the, surprising the, well there's that and what i really appreciate too uh I, I, to come all the way back to the reason i began this aside is that uh multiple times in the books uh cheng says things like in the same way that television studies has shifted 
mm-hmm. to, to look at these new questions or the in the same way there's another one too um it might have been film studies actually but but she's pointing to kind of of um curves in other fields that legitimate her kind of curvature in game studies or in relationship to other game studies that I find very refreshing. It, mm-hmm. Sometimes it is difficult uh, to read a book of game studies and think about how this compares to literally anything else outside of game studies. That, that was a very long aside. Um, the uh, Walden, if people want to play Walden, uh, it's on itch.io. Uh, it might be on Steam too. I'm not sure, but uh, it's uh, eighteen dollars and forty five cents. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you want to talk about, Michael? Well, uh, as I said, sort of structurally, like we've got the argument down, right? We have given you the argument of this book. Uh, every subsequent chapter is uh, a sort of series of examples that spin out the implications of this idea that uh, games can have some sort of ecological thinking within them or behind them. Um, And it goes, like, for every example goes kind of a different way, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Going through this book and talking about every single example would make this an unusually long podcast even for us. Um, So we're probably not going to do that. Uh, And each chapter kind of, uh, I would say, maybe breaks up uh, its examples in terms of Maybe the inflection is a good word. Uh, The inflection of the type of ecological thinking that is happening. So the first chapter is called mesocosm, which we should talk about because that's a key term here and probably not one. People aren't probably listening and they're like, ah, yeah, mesocosm. I know what that Mm is. Um, Oh, yes. But then the second chapter is called scale. If you're listening, you probably have some idea of what scale is. Uh, The third chapter is non-human. The fourth chapter is entropy. And the fifth chapter is collapse. So there's this arc of thinking about kind of, uh, you know, the mesocosm, as I said, we'll explain what this means, uh, the mesocosm uh, of games uh, and their ecological thinking, uh, thinking it through terms of scale, the non-human, and then finally entropy and collapse. So this kind of arc toward, uh, let's say, some darker material, uh, which is, you know, somewhat fitting of, of the ecological moment. Um but yeah, that's that's in broad strokes, like that is what this book is about, and that is the argument that is pursuing. Uh, and we'll probably, I think, from this point onward, just kind of talk about specific examples or uh, try try to give the the arguments in as <laughs> in as brief a way as possible, as we uh, as, as two guys who talk way too much are capable. Mm-hmm. So, Cameron, we're, we're so good at it. <laughs> we're, very, <laughs> we're very good and and as uh as is evidenced by my uh riffing on the joke as opposed to getting right <laughs> to chapter one uh so mesocosms um like they're so set up at the very beginning of chapter one um uh, i think just to, to give a preferatory statement chapter one here is if we already know that we need to do ecological thinking then mesocosm is like the connective tissue that that allows us to think of games as their own ecologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so mesocosms, she kind of evokes these examples of, they're basically just mini ecosystems. Um, they're the idea that, uh, you know, if you've got a fish tank in your house, and uh, it probably isn't going to tell you much about the ocean, just in a general sense. Mm-hmm. But if you made, you know, say went to a museum and got a big, big, big tank, you know, a million gallon tank, I don't know if that's a thing. Um, a big tank. 
I don't, you know, I, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to think in my head, what's a million gallons look like? I don't know. How, how big was the thing where they filmed Titanic? I don't know. Well, I don't what well, you know. That's the kind of thing where if you had known it, it would have been like whoa. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've been really. I, I, that was the layup for me. I was giving you the ball, um, but I don't know either. But anyway, so it's all to say, right? Obviously, there are uh, stages of scale and size between the fish tank in your house and the ocean. Um, scientists believe that you can create basically many ecosystems at larger scales, although not at the full scale, that will allow you to learn something significantly about the big system. So we can create many simulations, say, of, of parts of the ocean, and we can run experiments on it, or test it, or observe it, and we can learn things about the big ocean that we wouldn't know already. Right. So, so, so that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so, like, just, this is, this is a... Uh, recurring point of concern within the field of science within science studies is how do we design experiments uh in ways that are not so small that our our results are completely unrepresentative um obviously we can't study the entire system of the world if we if we could somehow do that without mediation then we would not need science um so how do we get a kind of uh, a larger more uh realistic quote unquote a way of looking at the situation that we hope to observe uh, without making it so small that it's going to introduce a, a lot of distortions into our data. Um, the mesocosm is kind of the response to this. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. And so so the idea here is that, that games themselves are mesocosms, um, that they provide a freewheeling space <laughs> to uh to to observe and do experiments around the relationship between humans and ecology or just ecology um mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a broader sense so wandering around walden in the video game walden can tell you things about the relationship between uh, how you feel in the environment about uh non-human actors in the environment right so you know trees and bugs and moss if those things were simulated to an appropriate degree um, and, uh, and, and she says, actually, this is on page 21. She says, uh, quote, this is the, the end of a paragraph, end of a section, like portions of a field sectioned off for study. So that'd be a mesocosm or partially enclosed waters, a mesocosm game ecologies toy with select variables within environments that remain close to, but apart from life. And the best games, like the most successful ecological experiments, try to fine line between bounded tidiness and inclusive reality, heightening our awareness of mechanism while providing ample outlets for our energy and curiosity. And I'm assuming best best games here is is not like a, you know obviously it's not an objective measure, but it best, Call of Duty best, Modern Warfare, <laughs> Modern Warfare Two, of course. Uh, <laughs> the uh, but yeah, that uh, best games here are uh, the ones that are most useful for thinking ecologically, mm -hmm. right? And so. Um, yeah, I mean, what do we? I I think that since this is such a core claim, I think we do need to reflect on that a little bit. Do you think that this is? I I, I mean, I don't know uh, what the word other than true is, right? But do you <laughs> think that there is is such an easy connection between, say, playing Firewatch and then going to a managed forest? Well, so this is. Uh... When I say I have a problem with this book, I don't mean like I want to like you know 
like throw fists or anything but sort of my problem in thinking through this book is uh just the one that 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 comes to me when you when you put it like that which is to say sure i can see a connection between playing firewatch and then going to to a managed forest right like that way of thinking about uh games and environments is it I'm not going to say it like makes intuitive sense to me, uh, although I think at this point in my life it does. Um, I don't know what the follow through is, right? I, I can see how a game uh, can be thought of as an ecological simulation. Um, and sure, we can have more games uh, that simulate ecologies in more diverse and more interesting ways, ways that are uh, sort of closer to like ecological reality or have more of that kind of um, you know, some some sort of ethical or political bent to them in that sense. Uh, and then my kind of uh, final response is then like, well, so then what does that do? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, like, what does it do if I am playing Firewatch and then I go to uh, whichever, whichever park it is that Firewatch is based on? I don't remember. Um, but then I go to that one and I'm like, ah, yeah, this is that place. Mm-hmm. Right, like, what is what does that recognition do, um, and what are sort of the alternatives to simple recognition, simple rep- representation? Yeah, yeah, I I do wonder about, and we're going to talk about it because she does, I think, bring up some some potential things. But I do think, you know, just this is this is a, the core claim, right? That I think that any reader of this book is either going to be on board with or not. I I don't know if there's very much argumentation in the book that says here's why this is preferable or here's why like the truth of this thing right or or, you know kind of proving it to be true i do think you have to kind of uh approach this from do i think that there is a uh in and uh she specifically couches it in terms of mimesis right Mm -hmm. um do i think that there is a, a mimetic relationship between digital environments and environments in the dirt world, for lack of a better, lack of a better uh, term, uh, do I think there's a momentic relationship that then necessarily transfers um, relations and political stances in the develop the development of me as a person, mm-hmm. right? So, do I experience dirt world, and do I experience virtual worlds in a way that does the same kind of thing to me as a person? And I, I don't think I do, um, which is not to say that the, like the arguments of the book are like, I'm not saying that to be like, well, we just have to throw the book out. Cause I, cause I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot here that's very useful, but I think just on some basic level, like as someone who does really enjoy a lot of like, um, uh, you know, I, I like to garden. I like to do that. My, I, I grew up in a, in a very rural environment, um, and, uh, did a lot of outdoorsy things. Um, I just don't, I, I, as much as I, and I've written about these kinds of games too, um, quite a lot. I don't think that there's the same relationship. I think different kinds of relationships are formed and I don't know if they're transferable even in modes of thought. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know. I, you know, that's not, that's just, you know, my perspective on the thing. I do think it's interesting here, Michael, that, uh, this is a book like several books that we've read that are kind of contemporary or, or newer books. Uh, that go back to adventure. Yes. And the relationship between uh, the, what, it's Mammoth Cave? Is that mm-hmm. is that true? Yeah, the Mammoth uh, Cave system in Kentucky. And, and, in Kentucky. And then the, um, 
uh, in the digital space, right, of, of uh, adventure, this kind of early adventure game. Because we read about that in Aubrey Annable's book, mm-hmm. uh, Playing with Feelings. And there's another one, too. Uh, dang, I had it yesterday. And I, anyway. Um, should have written it down. I should have written it down. I didn't have it in front of me. I was I was outdoors, Michael, and I was watering my plants <laughs> and thinking about it, <laughs> thinking about the book. Um, there was nothing, you know, that's a critical difference. Is if I'm sitting in front of my computer, I can just mm-hmm. jot something down. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, no, so it sorry. does go back. It does go back to to adventure uh, to, to put us back on track, I guess, a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> So it's I, I like that you brought up the issue of mimesis. So because this is it, it, if you approach it as someone who likes gardening and being outside, um, I approach this as a literary scholar, uh, mm. where we have debated mimesis for a couple of centuries, <laughs> and what what is sort of the the follow through or the outgrowth of mimesis. Um, so mimesis is just uh, the, the the practice of uh, imitation. Uh, or rather, the the ability of representation to mimic or model uh, some kind of extra textual uh, thing or reality. And one of the the, the driving questions of this book uh, is, how do games model ecological reality? What is what is sort of the mimesis? Uh, what are what are the techniques of mimesis that games have with regard to? Uh, natural or ecological environments and kind of what are the follow-throughs uh on that what are the consequences what are the i mean uh in literary studies right it would be like sort of what what is what is the ideological content that gets condensed into the fantasy that is the representation Mm -hmm. right um what are the things that we choose not to think about so we can think about things in this way uh and one of the things that Chang one of the things that Chang points out, of course, is that most games have a fairly limited relationship to, like, the the environment uh, that they represent. Uh, you know, they're very often uh, built on ideas uh, like, so she says, you know, usually games are some are things like background scenery. Um, they rely on stereotyped landscapes, which is to say, like, uh, you know, the... It, it's just background and it's like you you are intended to understand like it's not really important it's like a skybox right you're intended mm-hmm. to understand that there are mountains in the distance and these mountains look like mountains that you've seen in photographs and that you've seen in movies or what have you um and that they're predicating player success on the extraction and use of natural resources so let's say a recent game like animal crossing new horizons right <gasps> has a lot of embedded uh, ideas about the natural world and about ecology and in particular i think that the game has received um a lot of criticism for the way that it is uh abstractive or it 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 reinforces this extractive logic by like letting you visit other player or not other players islands but like there's that there's this weird mechanic in the game um where you can just go to like a sort of randomly generated island and farm for materials and then go home because your island that you live on um which is in and of itself, right? Like the stereotyped idea of the island as a place that is new, as a place that is removed from all other uh, sort of influences or forces, and that you can arrive there and start doing things 
with a with a fresh break from whatever has come before, right? That in and of itself, that idea, that way of thinking about nature has a long, long history uh, that is, you know, on the one hand, uh, sort of speculative and philosophical. If you think of like Thomas More's uh, notion of like his his book Utopia, which the the land of Utopia, the no place is an island, um, and is like it's it's detachment from lived reality is signaled by the fact that it is called the no place the utopia and that it is an island you know what's Um, interesting about that island michael what is interesting about that island much like animal crossing new horizons it is an artificial island because Ah. the island in utopia they dig a massive channel Oh, that's right. It's like an isthmus, and they turn it into an island. Right, right. How about that? Boom! So, bam, there's that. Uh, And then um, there's that sort of, like, stereotyped way of thinking about nature on the one hand. um, And then there is sort of the extractive logic, which, of course, is the logic of ecological devastation, that we can continue to pull these resources out of this land with, like, no actual consequences to the environment, to the ecosystem. Um, and that in and of itself leads to uh, or is like bound up in a lot of like colonialist thinking, right? That mm-hmm. uh, there are places where we are not that exist primarily for us to go there and take things from them. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have if other people happen to be there, you know, don't worry, we're going to find ways to discount uh, their presence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general, right, like video games. Not great. Even even sort of like the funnest, cutest little video game uh, like Animal Crossing relies on, uh, in many ways, this these ways of thinking about and interfacing with the environment. Um, that said, right, like we, we can we can make these critiques like this, this representation of the environment or this representation of ecological thinking is not good for these reasons. Uh, but where where does kind of the reality effect kick in right mm-hmm. like where does uh you know your way of playing animal crossing uh kind of uh mesh with a real relationship to the environment and this is where adventure becomes really important for chang uh to like after this long digression to go back around to this question of adventure mm-hmm. uh because adventure or colossal cave adventure is of course the the first kind of parser based uh, interactive fiction i think actually technically the first piece of interactive fiction um and it is written by uh first off uh scott crowther did i get his first name right i know his will name is crowther i think it's will will crowther and um woods is the other guy mm-hmm. um because he Woods comes in later and like adds a whole bunch. He like adds more rooms and things like that. Uh, but the the point that we've covered before is that the first kind of draft of adventure, the first version of adventure that Crowther built, uh, was modeled very much on his own experience as a spelunker and his exploration of the Mammoth Cave system in Kentucky, which means that its relationship to mimesis is not kind of this general like oh, we're going to go to the island in nature, right? It is uh, mediated by his very specific experiences and his very specific ways of looking at the environment uh, in ways that, and I I actually, I love this part of of this chapter, um, that other types of criticism haven't quite uh, clocked yet, right? Uh, the, The thing that's really interesting about adventure is that 
uh, and I actually had recently gone back and replayed uh, a, the first couple of rooms of adventure before I was reading this. Uh, so it was it was one of those nice little timely moments. Um, adventure has a parser, which means that you type in, uh, you know, or rather, you get a description of the environment, like you are looking at a house in the woods. It looks like this, uh, and then you input like walk north, walk south, like look house, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the parser has to understand what it is, what what sort of orders you are giving it. Uh, so uh, if you don't understand something, uh, or rather, like, if you want to look at something, but you don't type it the right way, the parser will be like, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, so it introduces kind of this break between your ability to interact with the environment uh, and your ability to observe it. But, and this is crucial, even the way that you are observing the environment is delivered through the voice of the game, through the voice of the parser, and that voice is, uh, it, it, it relies on a certain type of mimesis, right? It describes the world in the ways that a caver would. It calls the different parts of the cave system once you get there. Uh, there's like a whole, you know, spelunker's terminology of like this type of, uh, you know, part of a cave is called this, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. A hallway, a room, a dome, right. a pit, I think. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so the there's this really interesting thing, uh, and one of the things Chang does is that it, it seems to reproduce kind of this, um, the, she calls it, you know, the orthodox Cartesian dualism between mind and body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of just sort of to invoke, right? Like, Car- Descartes is the person we think of when we think of, like, uh, I think, therefore I am, right? I am a mind <clears throat> inhabiting a body that is separate from me. But what actually is really interesting to me is how this complicates Cartesian thinking, uh, because for Descartes, the, the, the body is essentially a dumb machine, right? Uh, mm. The mind uh, causes it to do things that produce sense data that the mind can then interpret, mm-hmm. but the, the voice, we shall say, uh, or the AI of adventure is delivering sense data in a way that is already inflected by the knowledge of the caver. Um, and whether or not you, the player, know this, uh, you are necessarily going to start thinking in terms that the parser is providing you, because you are to, to understand what the parser is telling you that you are uh, in this type of room, you are in this hallway. There's a pit here. Uh, even if you don't know that that's caver terminology, you are experiencing that kind of mimesis. Yeah, there's a you know. Uh... To, to visualize it, right? You know, we think we're drinking from the, the sweet, sweet garden hose of unmediated video gaming, right? Mm-hmm. We're just getting it just delicious cold water. But in reality, it's passing through the cheesecloth of caving ideology. <laughs> and we are getting the drippings. Do you think that do you think that illustrated that better? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's great. Uh, <laughs> but listeners, it is, but let <laughs> us know. Yeah, let us know if you if you liked uh, that. But it, but yeah, I think I think uh, you walking through that is really helpful, right? Because it's demonstrating that there are all of these processes of mediation, right, or or of of uh, parsing that are happening before it even gets to us, right? We think mm-hmm. that there is a relate. You know, I'm sitting here and the game is in front of me, and we're getting a direct relation there uh, between me and the cave space. But in fact, there's all kinds of other things happening, and it's useful and politically helpful to be accounting for all of that. Um, I don't know if she calls this ecological, but I think I think it probably would be. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, this is this is this example of adventure is, uh, you know, at least partly her way of pointing out like here here is how aside from sort of what I walked through with my Animal Crossing example, where we can Mm -hmm. look at uh, how the ecological thinking of video games is basically, you know, more or less regressive on all counts. Mm -hmm. uh, Here is a way of of. uh, you know, ecomimesis, uh, which is a, a, a term that she pulls out of Tim Morton, which is essentially just the the, the mimesis of nature, uh, or you know, quote unquote nature. Um, here is a way of mimesis that is not, you know, necessarily. It, it's not treating like the, the. It is not background scenery because in in a real way, in adventure, like the environment that you are in is the game right thing number one um and it is not necessarily stereotyped i mean you could because like not everyone is like oh yeah you know all that caving lingo rooms domes pits uh it is a very specific and situated way of knowing the environment um and it is uh i mean this is also where things get sort of wacky because adventure is simultaneously modeled on a real cave system and also filled with a bunch of like fantastic D &D crap (laughs) um <laughs> and like birds right and like birds a bird and like there's treasure to get um it but it's also not necessarily extractive because like the point is not uh you know harvest all of these gemstones and then wait three days and come back and harvest more gemstones and then sell them and then you can get better caving equipment or something bizarre like that um mm-hmm. so it, it is a different orientation toward uh you know uh ecomimesis or sort of um you know, ecological ambiance. Please, someone who is listening, create colossal cave extraction. <laughs> that is that is just like a idler of colossal cave adventure where you just are able to use like a large digger to like go from room to room. It's like, and guess what? We found coal in the colossal cave. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. You're just getting the things that are already there, but you're getting oh. them in a horrible way. Like you find the room where the birds are and every day you can go and get a different bird. <laughs> and after you get like 200 birds, you can upgrade your clicker. Um, but yeah, so, so there's a move from, from that, um, from the Colossal Cave Adventure thing to then talking about walking simulators. Um, um, I don't think we need to like walk through this necessarily, but the idea that they're kind of... Um, an appropriate form of nature game because they are mostly uninhabited. They're very slow, right? You're, you're walking mm-hmm. around pretty slowly. They do storytelling in a spatial way that requires you to kind of be in the environment and, and experience it. Dear Esther uh, gets evoked here. Uh, shout out to Eric Swain, video game blogger Eric Swain, who gets <laughs> to be, quote, one of the first to devote blog space to Dear Esther. <laughs> there were many of us blogging about Dear Esther in, in 2012. I, I I have you know. <laughs> but, uh, but, but she kind of traces... Um, uh, a few different posts of, of Swain's across uh, his work at Pop Matters to kind of talk about the kind of almost absorption of Dear Esther and the kind of reflection on Dear Esther and how it's different. And mm-hmm. basically just to talk about um, the kind of thing that, that I think that if you play anything that's called a quote-unquote walking sim, you're going to get, right? Contemplative, slow, um, asking you to look at things and like the looking and the thinking, Michael, you were talking earlier is like 
contemplation as the mechanic or as the verb or mm-hmm. thinking as the verb. That's exactly, you know, kind of the, the argument she's making here. And then she does that. Uh, she makes a kind of move to then talk about ARGs, uh, alternate reality games, in serious games, because both of them, um, she says, collapse the distinction, right, between a game space and the real world. Um, so they are ways of thinking about, you know, if we do ecological thinking in relationship to the digital game that we look at through a screen, then how do we consider these systems once they are no longer just in the screen? That's kind Mm -hmm. of her reason for bringing this example in. Um, and her conclusion here really, uh, I think it's telling that she kind of gets to Jane McGonigal at the end of the chapter, because this to me, and you know, tell me if I'm, I'm wrong here, Michael, but to me, this was just a way of connecting up like quote unquote, real politics to this kind of thing that that the things that we know that people are doing in response to ARGs and in response to serious games uh, learning you know experimenting having a serious relationship to like the information that's presented through a game that that um, relationship tells us something about the relationship that already exists when they're looking at a screen but we just don't have as much um, kind of access to that Mm-hmm. Is that how you're reading the section? Yes, right. Like okay. ARGs become uh, a way of sort of solving our, our initial question, which is like, all right, like even if I agree with you on on sort of the ecological thinking behind games, how does this how does this impact like what I do when I'm not playing a game? And ARGs yeah. are one of the one of the sort of like limit cases for that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And she and and I think, like I said, I think it's telling that that we land in basically just kind of supporting Jane McGonigal's conclusions from from her various work. And those are things that I'm just deeply critical of. I I don't Mm -hmm. I don't uh, necessarily agree with those. Um, Right. So in 64, she says, quote, can games really promote learning activism and lifestyle change? I mean, that's the kind of core concern here. Um, and she, and that comes on the tail end of talking about uh, these ARG players who had, quote unquote, solved these promotional games and then went on on 52. She talks about this. They went on to, quote unquote, solve other real world problems like 9-11 and the DC <laughs> sniper. Um, and and uh, and this is not this is her in conversation with McGonagall. This is not uh, Chang saying that they are solving those things, but she's mm-hmm. kind of tracing this example through McGonagall. And McGonagall says that even though like solving 9-11 and solving the DC sniper case, that those things both were failures and and solving 9-11, right, uh, I think leads to a bunch of other things, right, mm-hmm. of, of who did 9-11, mm-hmm. um, it, which puts you in a deeply conspiratorial space uh, often, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, McGonagall says like ultimately, and this is what she's quoting on McGonagall, ultimately it means that this is just against the stereotype of the disenfranchised, unpolitical, passive gamer who's sitting at home and is not involved in real-world politics or real-world problems because they do care about these real things and they want to take um, the skills that they have learned in relationship or developed in relationship to a game and they want they could be applying those to real-world problems. And so then, therefore, we should be harnessing the power of the gamer and this is kind of McGonagall's whole thing. And I'm left here at the end of the chapter thinking the same thing I think when I read McGonagall, which is why do we see the, these actions in games as in any way like metaphorical or relational to real-world achievements, right? And, mm-hmm. and by that, I mean like distributing food at food banks, right? Like these are not the same kind of uh, actions that are being done. 
And um, I'm very curious, too, why negative examples never show up, right? So I can think of lots of other things that happen in the game space that are big and scalar and require a lot of participation that are real, real bad. So like brigading or mm -hmm. mass Twitter harassment, right? Th well, those are... Sorry, go I was, was going to say, sort of, <clears throat> you know, as you said, like, uh, the, the idea of, like, solving 9-11 puts you in a yeah. deeply conspiratorial mindset, and what was uh, Gamergate in 2014, but, like, watching a bunch of people trained in the logic of video games and solving plots... Uh, looking for the ways that various people were connected and like operating behind the scenes so they could find the next uh, kind of, you know, cohort of folks that they were going to harass off of Twitter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a good I think that's a good example, because it, I think it brings me to, you know, if if this is true, right, if the model is true. And I think that that, yeah, maybe we can pull enough examples together to, to say that that the relationship that is formed between a human and a game can then be a transferable relation that goes other places that really does create positive relations. Um, then what also are the knock on effects of that being negative, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, if this is a relation that is just about the absorption and kind of um, feedback loop of politics, right? Um, what happens in all the other cases where that relationship is toxic or bad? Mm -hmm. Right. Which, you know, if there are good examples of environmental games that do good things, there have to be examples of environmental games that do bad things. Right. Um, that make you I think the Animal Crossing example is, is pretty good. Right. That that only entrain you into ways of considering uh, the environment and nature as something to be demolished or annihilated or things like that. And, and we see that later on with the uh, chapter on farming, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty focused on it. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I just think, I think that, I, I think the chapter is really interesting. I think the method is really interesting. I think I'm left with a whole lot of questions about like where we land or like what we can do. And I don't think that, I think it's unfortunate to end with Jane McGonigal's work here because I don't think that Jane McGonigal pushes us anywhere mm -hmm. um, that we haven't already been before. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Chapter two? Yeah, chapter two. Um, and I would actually go as kind of a segue, right? I think mm -hmm. this is a question that recurs through every subsequent chapter. Um, this this question of like, well, here are some good things that can happen. And here's some, but like, how does it happen? How do they happen? Or like some, some of the later chapters are more open about sort of the, the, the negative uh, environmental thinking that games can inculcate. Um, it's mm. still kind of a question of like, well, so how, where, where is the leakage, right? Like how does the mm. leakage work? What are the mechanics of the leakage? Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I think that that's a, I, I think that's a really great point. You know, I, yeah, I think I'm still confused having read the book as to what, what the mechanics of, what is the process through which the leakage occurs? Right. And, and, and like, that is not, you know, people who are listening or people who haven't listened to other episodes, this is something that comes up quite often on the show. You know, I don't think this is unique to this book at all. And it's something that I am like repeatedly over and over and over again, writing about. I think I now have three academic publications or I'm in the process of three academic publications trying to figure it out. And I don't think that I have a better, really a better answer than, than Chang does here. So I'm not saying these things. I don't think Michael, you're saying these things either to be like, Oh, here's a hole in the book. It's more that, um, here, there is a, uh, a, a methodological presence in game studies that makes this pretty difficult to, to address directly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to, I think Chang does is doing the work, right, of proliferating examples from which we can look at and then try to figure it out. Right. Um, so the, the examples that dominate, so chapter two is called Scale. Um, and the examples that dominate here in terms of games are uh, Spore and mm-hmm. uh, later on in the chapter, No Man's Sky. But we get to those examples through actually film studies, uh, through talking about Powers of Ten, uh, which is a famous mm-hmm. educational film, like public educational film from 1977, mm-hmm. uh, which is, and you've, you have seen this parodied if you have not seen it, it yourself, even if you didn't know you see it, you you have seen it, I should say, um, because it is a very sort of famous, uh, like it, it starts out like an overhead view of some people having a picnic. And I think it starts by going out, right? Mm-hmm. It, it like yeah. goes backward, like out, it, it like zooms out by powers of 10. Um, and of course we have the, <clears throat> I need water. Uh-oh. It's getting choked up. Mm-hmm. getting emotional about powers of 10 about, about <clears throat> seeing molecules and seeing planets yes uh <clears throat> so um the the you start out with a, a an overhead view of a picnic and it slowly starts zooming out by the powers of 10 and uh this is narrated by a a physicist um his last name is morrison i don't remember his first name uh but it's you know powers of 10 like here here is the picnic right you we, we zoom out we see kind of the green space around the picnic we see the park and then we see kind of the city by the park and then we see the the state and then we see the country and the continent and uh, then we see the globe and blah, 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 and we're like going fast and finally we see the whole galaxy and the entire time we have this uh, you know very uh, educational video kind of physicist voice telling us what we are seeing and how fast we are accelerating and what is going on and what are the relationships to all these things and then once we reach the the outermost limit uh, of seeing uh, we telescope back down and we start going in by powers of 10 so we zoom in on the picnic again and then we zoom in on a man's hand and we see his skin cells and we eventually go down to seeing kind of uh the the um you know the 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 protons uh and and neutrons and everything that are represented as just like colored static on the screen Mm -hmm. uh uh chang offers this as a kind of big uh uh touch point in in the history of uh media culture for thinking about and looking at scale and changes in scale uh scale is always of course relational um you know there's there is a thing that is bigger than another thing which is smaller than some other thing that may be coming in between them and then there's even smaller things so on and so forth um and games tend to be very interested in scale uh I, I don't think she, I don't think the term she uses is like positive, um, but like in sort of uh, affirming ways, right? Like it's kind of scale only goes upward, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's the fantasy of unlimited growth of the video game um, that uh, you will get uh, sort of more and more power or, you know, sort of the, the cumulative uh, connotations of scale, I think is a, is a way of thinking about it. Um, and she looks at how, uh, for instance, Spore does uh, a similar kind of scale progression in, in its leveling, 
uh, or like the parts of that game um, where you start out as a microbe and then you become a larger microbe and then you become a multicellular organism and then you become some sort of weird fish thing and then you get onto the land and then you develop different types of civilization and then you can go into space and then you're zooming around space. Uh, there is that same kind of... Uh, infinite progress of scale and at the same time mm -hmm. spore is a much weirder example because even as it is kind of uh you know sort of technologically optimistic in this way it also allows you to model disasters essentially right like you can you can uh ruin your planet in spore through the overproduction of greenhouse gases um so th there's that <laughs> I'm, I, I've yeah. been talking for a while. I'm waiting to see if you have anything to add here. No, no. I mean, not really. I, I mean, I think that that's, that's the claim that's made. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, of all the chapters in the book, this is the, the most um, kind of like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I mean? In the sense of like, it is, uh, I don't have like methodological <laughs> concerns or, or interest in it necessarily. I just think that like, okay, sure. Um, so there's this kind of like, scale as context as better right um mm -hmm. you know the kind of infinite growth model that you were talking about and that she connects it up to uh, as well and then um basically says you know or asks an open question of does that give us the better or better abilities to think through our own relationships to scale in our actual life um mm -hmm. so she brings up kim stanley robinson's uh kind of climate change trilogy that he wrote or or climate um intervention trilogy the 40 50 60 trilogy mm -hmm. um and then talks about chrono zoom and no man's sky mm -hmm. yeah and i should also be clear right like uh the argument that she is making about spore uh is not like ah and spore complicates this idea of progression and that's good she actually says uh she calls spore um environmental slapstick because the the solution to uh there being too much greenhouse gas on your planet is you'd like just pop up a bunch of like i don't know co2 factories right like factories that would process that co2 in into something else so it reinforces that technological optimism and you can like make prettier canyons uh from your from your spaceship right you can reformat uh the the look of the planet um without any sort of environmental impact yeah so, it's kind of an uh, you know an, um for her right it's an like an allegory for an ideology Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and so ChronoZoom is a thing that uh, I cannot even begin to understand based on how it is described in this book. It is a very strange thing. I had to look it up. It is a gigantic uh, sort of, like, if you know the, uh, oh, heck, what's the presentation software? Uh, Prezi. Okay. No, no, no. Prezi, Prezi. Um prezi uh presentation software which is like you set up a circle and then you can zoom in on the circle because you have like mm -hmm. all of your little visual aids set up uh in a smaller space and you can zoom in and out on them chrono zoom is that but for like a timeline of the earth mm -hmm. uh and this was uh created by um a, a, a set of historians and this is a quote from chang the unfortunately named big historians <laughs> Uh, because that is what they call themselves, big historians, because they think about history on, on these really massive scales. Um, ChronoZoom is kind of their attempt to uh, 
show a, a model of knowledge, right? What uh, they call a browsing model of knowledge uh, that is kind of visual primarily rather than primarily textual. Rather than like reading a book about history, you see this timeline and you can zoom in on different parts of the timeline and see what was going on during like the Holocene period, right? The early Holocene or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and she connects this with No Man's Sky, which is... Uh, similarly predicated on issues of, of scope and scale but of course uh, as we know from the early days of no man's sky uh there was this kind of uh endless possibility of the scale right it it, it fell into mm -hmm. that video gamey trap of there just being an, an infinite number of worlds in an infinite number of space and it was the forever game um and uh, she she calls it out for kind of its blatant frontierism. That's a direct quote from her. Um, and she says, uh, both it and ChronoZoom, quote, suffer from a questionable enthusiasm for master narratives and sweeping views with their talk of master timelines, regimes, and infinite worlds. Yet, uh, what makes them both intriguing is uh, this rhetoric of scale that they deploy, which she ends up saying is kind of explicitly like a rhetoric of hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Right. What it, what makes these things effective is precisely their rhetoric of hyperbole, which is a scalar rhetoric. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, I think that that's basically just what's going on in the chapter. Right. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time connecting this chapter up with like my feelings about the previous chapter. Right. Um, just just in, in, in my reading, I had less to less to say about this chapter than than uh, the other ones. Uh, chapter three, Michael non-human we begin with my favorite thing on earth yes which is jacques derrida standing in a hallway completely naked in front of his cat and feeling judged for it mm-hmm mm -hmm. this is a this is a if, if you're not if you're not a deridian that's okay if you're not an animal studies person that's okay too but this is a kind of a famous uh a, like philosophical anecdote that derrida tells about uh or, or told He's dead mm -hmm. now. Um, <laughs> Derrida told uh, when he did the interview and then wrote the book or, or the, the lecture, I guess, The Animal That Therefore I Am, um, which is his like first foray. He did uh, like a year or maybe two years of lectures on animals and then kind of wrote, wrote additionally on them as well, like the ethical relationship and, and the relationship between the human and the animal. But it begins, right, with him feeling like him having the experience of being judged for being naked in front of an animal mm -hmm. and then being like, whoa, why'd I feel that way? Right. This is a cat. It does not care if I'm naked or not. <laughs> and of course we connect this to Neko Atsume. Mm -hmm, of course. The, the Japanese cat collecting game. Now mm -hmm. I put this in my notes. Uh, this is going to be like a small tangent, but I just have to do it because, uh, it, it screams to me as an early modernist that this needs to be here. Uh, mm -hmm. Chang does not mention Michel Montaigne, mm -hmm. uh, the, the famous Renaissance essayist. The uh, man who invented the essay? Yes. Literally. <laughs> no, one, yeah. no one wrote essays before, before Montaigne. Or rather, essays? like, no one, no one called them essays. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So the thing that has always struck me about uh, the, the Derrida uh anecdote right because derrida is derrida and he's kind of always in conversation with like this entire intellectual tradition um i have always seen that particular anecdote as speaking to uh, a bit of montaigne's essay which is called like the apology for or defense of raymond siebold mm -hmm. um which is like 
sort of beside the point here. It's basically him, uh, Montaigne, uh, defending the natural theology, um, which is kind of this uh, early modern way of reconciling, like, the like activities of God in the observed natural world. Um, Montaigne defending the the work of uh, Raymond Siebold, who's this uh, Catalan uh, theologian, possibly monk, I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, but anyway, one of the things that Siebold catches a lot of heat for um, is that he does not... Um, he thinks that humans are too eager to think of the world as if God were a human himself, right? Like that mm-hmm. when humans look out at the world and they interpret natural phenomena, they're interpreting it as a man would. Like they take the idea of like every human being the Imago Dei having sort of like, you know, the, the this um, sort of aspect of God in them. They take that in, in a way that is too literal and wrong. Um, and one of the things that Montaigne says in his defense of Siebold uh, is this very famous quote. He says, uh, when I play with my cat, how do I not know that she is playing with me? Um, which is like, to me, right? Like the, the core concern of this chapter, not about cats exactly. Right. But about non-humans because Mm -hmm. the non-humans here are not literal non-humans. Of course, when we're thinking about Nekoatsume, we are not playing with literal cats. Uh, but the, the, the question that is being asked by this chapter is, uh, in some ways, right, like, how how do how do we create non-humans that we then play with, but then how do those non-humans then sort of, like, react back, right? How do, how might they play with us? Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, like, how, how do things get put into play through the production of these, these digital non-humans? Uh, that's my, that's my uh, early modernist tangent. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> No, I, I think I think that's good. Um, yeah, I think quickly kind of moves away from that. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I, you know, I don't, I only want to read people talking about naked Derrida because <laughs> um, because it really is like a, a fascinating thing because it is about as you're pointing out. I think the the the, the Montaigne uh, reference is great because it's about the question of relationality. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the center point uh, in, or, or where do we have to anchor our observations or the way that we begin to talk about things when we talk about environment, right? Um, is, you know, in, in the broadest sense, if we're talking about a field, right? So, you know, a, a beautiful idyllic field, there is no, without, without some preconceived ideology, right? There's no reason to privilege the, uh, the rabbit over the person, over the dead tree, or the rock, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so then you have to like say, all right, well, given what we know about the the world and what we know about ethics and what we know about things that we should be preserving, uh, the person comes first. They get to eat the rabbit, right? Because they gotta. We, we uh, exist as a first ethical subject for humans, and so then therefore everything else kind of uh, operates as what what Heidegger would call standing reserve, right, mm-hmm. for us. So. Um, and I think actually Chang has written about uh, Heidegger and the Standing Reserve before, so I think you could check out her work on that. That I don't think shows up in this book, or I don't remember it showing up. But um, but then so then she talk, starts talking about all the different kind of modes of generating non-humans in um, in digital places, which is a little bit different than what I thought we were in for, which was like some non-human stuff. You know, yes, like what like what. What is it like to be a video game? Um, <laughs> that's not really what we're in for here. What we're in for is 
um, some really, I think, fascinating um, interest, discussion about both how does non-human embodiment work in games. So when you play Tokyo Jungle, this is something that, that I literally uh, was pitching for a conference that was uh, canceled by uh, COVID-19. Um, what, what is it like when you play Tokyo Jungle? Like, what is going on there? Mm-hmm. Look forward to my book on sci-fi video games where there's a chapter on it. But, uh, but so she's interested in that kind of thing. And then she's also interested in how did non-humans get represented um, in video game environments, which leads to this really interesting discussion of speed tree um, and uh, the develop the game development technologies that allow developers to populate their worlds with lots of different um, simulations of living things in the world. Right. These are so. This is this is yeah. This is genuinely truly fascinating she talks about a couple of um essentially speaking of like the heideggerian standing reserve um asset developers right there are companies who exist primarily not to make video games but to model different types of trees and shrubs and rocks environmental features uh in various game engines that they then license to game developers so the game developers don't have to incur the cost of uh you know modeling all of this stuff from the ground up yeah 100 percent. and so and, and so it's not just even the the creation of those things which 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 is cool and interesting but it is the the making the the generating them as able to be to fit well into the technical parameters of the game. So it's not just like did you make a tree? It's that did you make a tree that uh, doesn't use too many resources um, mm-hmm. and looks good at a distance, right? When there is lower resolution versions of it, and still looks pretty good when you're up close and you're seeing the bark or or, or whatever, right? Uh, one of the tests that she that she quotes someone talking about is standing at the base of the tree and then looking up. And like, will the parallax look correct? Will, will the leaves move in the correct way? Or will there be kind of a depth of field effect that happens just by looking at the, the design of the tree? So it's it's really this kind of non-human thing, right? That this, this tree as just as importantly articulated as any, you know, uh, narratively important character. Uh, she's, mm-hmm. she's, you know, speaking to the intense amount of labor power that goes into getting the tree to feel right. Uh, and, and be right kind of in its environment. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. That's it. <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, and that's, this is one of the structural oddities of this particular chapter is that then we kind of like hinge on this uh, into a, sort of a different type of game, which become like, rather than looking at how these assets are produced uh, and like how they show up and how they're thought about um, these non-human assets, uh, how are they, how, how, how do games actually let us become these assets in some ways, right? Where are, where mm-hmm. are the games that let us play the tree? Uh, and what do those look like? And how do they, like, what sort of affordances do they have? And she uh, connects these with um, talking about it narratives, uh, mm-hmm. which are these curious uh, 18th uh, and early 19th century sort of novels that show up. Um that are it's you know things like one of them is called like the story of a sofa or something uh which are just sort of these weird little uh 
sort of moralistic novels about like here is a sofa and uh like or here is here is how it was made and here is like the room that it was put in and here are all of the things that the sofa witnessed if you can imagine toy story but without any kind of of the animism Mm -hmm. um like (laughs) that is what these these uh stories are and you know the 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 objects the the it the it of the it narrative uh you know gets sold and circulated and there's a whole bunch of as you would expect right like marxist criticism on this about circulating commodities and so on and so forth the dancing Um, table yes uh so uh she she takes these as kind of uh an early a forerunner of the type of game that she wants to look at now which are these games that she calls bit narratives um which are you know digital games that allow you to inhabit or otherwise sort of significantly be some sort of non-human thing uh mm-hmm. and she the other sort of connection here is she says like the it narrative survives into the modern day through these kind of stories of production um she looks at uh the two two pieces in particular, the titles of which I don't remember. Oh, whoa! One was called "Tales of a Neoliberal T-Shirt," um, mm-hmm. which was uh, some podcast whose whose name I don't remember. Like, had some T-shirts made, and then as part of sort of the agreement of getting the T-shirts made, then wrote this sort of like long piece tracing how the the T-shirt was came together, right? From from its multiple vectors, like how were the producers supplied, like. Where did they get the the money for this? Like, how did the after the t-shirts were made, how were they shipped to various people? Um, and then, uh, if rubber ducks could talk, which I remember this piece, um, I remember when this was kind of like blowing up Twitter, which was about a a a, a cargo container on a, you know a shipping vessel coming over from East Asia that capsized or it it hit a storm or something anyway a whole like a whole cargo container of rubber ducks the bath toy uh ended up in the ocean and for years afterward uh on the you know uh western seaboard of i think i'm pretty sure it was like canada sort of like the pacific northwest you would just get rubber ducks washing up on the beach um and so it's a another sort of like you know, deep dive journalistic piece looking at how these things were made, where they came from, how they would have, um, you know, dispersed upon the ocean currents, so on and so forth. So between kind of the old style of it narrative and this contemporary form of nonfiction uh, narrative, uh, Chang sees games like, uh, uh, what is it called? The Novelist, uh, Mm -hmm. Mountain, Mm -hmm. and uh, Phone Story as some examples of these kind of bit narratives. And what are those? Well, so bit narratives, uh, she, she gives a couple qualifiers for them, um, but basically are either about taking direct control of a thing or mediating or, or meditating, I guess, meditating on the, um, the agency of a non-human thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so just kind of seeing how it exists in the world and what it does. And so, for example, I think good, a good example of these uh, is uh, everything um and and mountain too mm-hmm. um that you are uh taking control of a thing and then just kind of watching it do its thing so mountain just spins around and eventually de- actually does all kinds of weird stuff um that that uh you know isn't isn't really taken into account in this book mm-hmm. but uh everything right like if you're a tree you can just sway back and forth and that's about all you can do you might be able to move sometimes but um but yeah, so so it's kind of a deep uh, engagement and concentration about the um, 
the capabilities um, and the effects on the world that a, a non-human might have. Um, yeah, there, there's a little bit of a discussion here about couching it or, or, or relating it in terms of, say, uh, vital materialism or uh, object-oriented ontology. Um, I, I actually don't think that any of these things need to, like, I understand why they're in the book because you have you have to put that kind of thing in a book, but um, I think the the close reading here carries us far enough that that kind of uh, the philosophical background actually probably doesn't need to be filled in for any significant reason. Because I even because she kind of ends up going with Jane Bennett's vital materialism as a kind of undergirding process for this, but um, you know we've talked about this before. We talked about this in the Aubrey Annable episode about affect, right? I mean, vital materialism is a system that undergirds everything, and so yes, mm-hmm. right? Like yes, it does in fact become involved in vital materialism, but so does everything on the earth. And so I think that that uh, I would have really liked to see a more sustained engagement with that idea to see like what the reason for it is. Um, as opposed to like just kind of providing a substrate. But also, when you write a monograph and you have good ideas, you got to provide a substrate. So I understand, mm-hmm. you know, that this is not a complaint. It is a, oh, I just want to read more about it. Yep. I mean, um, like, for instance, one of the things that I wanted to know more about is like, why are so many of these bit narratives games that, like, in the case of Mountain, right, were sort of wildly unpopular, or in the other cases, just sort of like generally, like, not not like super famous games right what is it about uh this mode of play that makes this makes it like sort of ipso facto marginalized right so yeah yeah what makes people so mad about it right like people were angry about mountain (laughs) um um so yeah maybe people hate the environment you know i just want to stand uh you know if you read the last two pages of this chapter i just want want to stand up for for my my own master's thesis the non-human lives of video games. I think it would be an interesting thing to look at these two things in combination if you're a grad student who wants to <laughs> compare yeah. my work with Chanks. That'd be great. <laughs> if you want to do that, I think there's some productive engagement to, to happen there. It's a good master's thesis. I liked yeah, it. It'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, and then we move into the last two chapters, which are kind of the dark chapters. The, fir- the fourth chapter is called Entropy. Mm-hmm. What do you think of Entropy, Cameron? Uh, I really like it. I don't know. Think think it's at the very beginning of the chapter, but it's toward the beginning where she just says that games. No, it's pretty close to the beginning where she says games are a waste of energy. Yep. <laughs> and so she's she's using entropy here, um, as a in its like kind of technical capacity, right? Of of uh, energy uh, falling out of a system and a system kind of winding down. Um, and so then uses this as as an entree into talking about how games, um how they depict kind of uh, extraction, how they extract things out of us and how they ultimately kind of, of um, uh, I don't know, produce bad affects, produce bad ideologies, uh, produce mm-hmm. unuseful conditions for thinking about games. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, this is this is a chapter that goes in a couple of different directions, uh, which I think maybe makes it difficult to talk mm-hmm. about. Uh, but... You know, she starts out mentioning that when, when we talk about e-waste, right, electronic waste, uh, old computer parts and things like that, uh, weirdly enough, and I think this is changing, right? It's changing by the t- at the time she is writing. Uh, but weirdly enough, early on when we first started getting reports and statistics about e-waste, video game companies were not included. Uh, it was mm-hmm. all 
actual like computer manufacturers like Hewlett Packard or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is despite that uh, the fact that Greenpeace <laughs> um, has uh, uh, quote scored uh, they scored Nintendo zero on all criteria allowing infinite room for future improvement. That is a quote <laughs> from the Greenpeace report on <laughs> Nintendo and their environmental impact. In- infinite room. <laughs> Mm, um, interesting yes uh so uh there's you know on the one hand there's that sort of issue right that like necessarily uh computers or like computing digital gaming uh produces e-waste uh pulling off of phone story in the previous chapter which traces like you know the extraction of conflict minerals that show up in your cell phone um that's also tied up in, in this uh sort of problem um but then there's the the production of waste heat uh by computers by video game systems uh and she touches on the 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 gendered qualities of this right uh the fact that uh like cis men are there's this this is like scare that they will be rendered infertile because they have laptops on their laps and the excess heat is going to uh you know destroy the ability of of their testicles to produce sperm Mm -hmm. um so there's that as well, right? Like that that sort of uh, weird follow through on entropy. Uh, and then we get to kind of the meat of the chapter, which is about farm games, uh, games about farming like Farmville, like Harvest Moon, like Stardew Valley, um, and how they basically ignore all of the waste, uh, not only of games, right? Because most games do not thematize their, their own wastefulness. Um, but the wastefulness inherent in farming and in contemporary farming, especially. Yeah. And so the examples I, I want to read from the book here, because I think that the the kind of move to that, um, I think the move to that is hard to understand if maybe without like the text here. But so she says, um, this is on 146, where feminist cultural studies, disability studies, and media industry analyses have pointed to, at worst, ingrained forms of chauvinism and misogyny, the erasure of players' bodies and lived experiences, the precarious economies of game industry labor, and at best, the uneasy potential for games to allow fluid forms of body play and queer world-making, my goal is to expand the scope of material, affective, and biopolitical inquiry to the organic and inorganic environments in which we live and play. In a narrow sense, the question will be whether games do or do not allow environmental actants and processes to body forth to be represented figuratively and politically as in Latour's multicameral parliament of things. So, so what she's saying here, right, is that we, we've looked at a lot of, the, game studies has looked at a lot of different issues, um, but one that is perhaps underlooked at is both, right, what, the two things you're pointing to, Michael, right? One of which is the, the literal production of waste, and the other is the representation of systems of waste in video games, right, mm-hmm. where... Where uh, and and I think actually we're probably not going to walk through the farm example just because I think there's a lot of small moving parts to it. But the big po- point of it is that farming is an extremely um, uh, pollutant intensive uh, apparatus, right, or, or, or uh, activity. It's a thing that hurts the environment in a lot of different ways that we do in order to not die. Uh, to, so we have food. And but in video games, video games are, have zero interest in representing any of that kind of stuff. So, for example, video games in Far- Farmville on on Facebook doesn't represent the amount of nitrogen that gets swept into um, you know the local river, right? 
due to your farming. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, and that's kind of she she runs through so to, 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 as as the thing that you, the the quote that you read, Cameron suggests mm-hmm. there are so many angles at work here, all of these fine moving parts, and essentially one of the things that Chang is doing is taking. We've talked about these casual games before, um, these and farm games to some extent, taking all of the things that other game scholars have written about with regard to these, uh, and then showing how those are all imbricated actually in a type of ecological or environmental thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Like the fact that uh, these games tend to approach gender in a certain way is in fact not uh, something you can disconnect entirely from uh, histories of, uh, well, actually, yes, they say gendered and raced in certain ways, right? From gendered and race practices of farming. Like this all kind of, uh, th- there is, there is a, a, an ecological dimension even in the analyses that is not itself pursued. So, yeah. um, she kind of like just goes through and says, okay, so like, here's a thing people have written about and here's how it's ecological. Here's a thing people have written about. Here's how it's ecological. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a really, uh, I think it's a very informative chapter, but informative in like that kind of micro, you know, Mm -hmm. the small moving of wheels kind of way. So shout out uh, someone who gets cited here, Kyle Bohanicki, um, for his work on uh, the theory, like uh, eco mods uh, in in Skyrim mods. Uh, This is uh, pulled in as an example of how players specifically can port in new types of ecological thinking into games um shouting out kyle because earlier this week uh of the week of recording uh we joined kyle on the looking for good live stream uh mm-hmm. and talked about game study study buddies and i don't know if they have an archive or anything but uh i think it's on youtube yeah okay so uh yeah check out youtube um we can put the the links to this in the notes to the show no just uh google youtube Okay, yeah, Google YouTube, uh, and everything else will will fall out from there. Yeah, you should check our Twitter account. There will be a link to it on our Twitter account for sure. You can go to twitter.com slash ranged touch to, to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, other stuff that I think is interesting in this chapter, um, there is an evocation building on dark ecology as a kind of idea. Um, in, in you know in the uh, long hierarchy of dark things uh, such as dark animal studies shout out mm-hmm. to james Tanisky. Um we get uh, an evocation of an idea of dark ludology um, and all of these kinds of things are are predicated on or, or, or at least her version of dark ludology is predicated on the idea of doing ludology or doing the study of games that uh, looks beyond the kind of moment of the game or focusing in on games that look beyond the moment of gameplay. So uh, looking to how trash is produced and distributed into the world um, and and how it produces good or bad effects, Uh, looking at the systems of extraction that allow those things to to happen, Uh, paying attention to those kinds of things. Um, uh, That that kind of gets floated here as as its own uh, method. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that as, as like its own thing. I think, I don't know if that needs a key term to it or not. I don't object to the idea of dark ludology conceptually. Um, but mm-hmm. I think it needs maybe a slightly more granular approach to, to warrant the title. Um, if only because does this mean that when I am playing a game of city skylines and I have to figure out what to do with all of this trash, like, is that, is that dark ludology? Because it doesn't feel particularly dark to me, right? Like that is, that is surface level, a mechanic of the game. And Mm -hmm. one of the, 
one of my ways of thinking about the dark prefix when it gets added to like dark animal studies or dark ecology it's a way of thinking about the the more uh hostile aspects of, of whatever the situation is so for instance like the the dealing with trash and recycling in a game of city skylines doesn't feel like that because that's kind of like it's what it says on the tin right sure. um so I, I I don't know. I would want to hear more about what what it is that makes it actually like what makes it warrant the title dark. Yeah, yeah. I don't and I don't even know about the the title dark. I think they're probably. I don't. You know, I feel the same way about dark ecology too as a term. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh yeah. So it's so gritty to like pay attention to what's happening. Mm -hmm. To pay attention to like coal ash pollutant. Ugh. Ooh, it's <laughs> It's capital R romanticism. Uh, they they just understood it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, not for me. The or I mean maybe dark ecology could be down the line, but uh, dark ecology not for me. Uh, the uh, any other stuff here in this chapter about entropy? I think it's really interesting, but I do think that um, like like I, like I said, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the mechanism here is in the granularity. And I think mm -hmm. if you're interested in the granularity of any of these arguments that we were talking about here in this chapter, you should just read the chapter. Mm -hmm. So then we get to the final chapter, which is collapse. Uh, and this is, uh, again, right, following up on from, from entropy as kind of the darker, um, more unsavory aspects of, of environmental or ecological thinking. Uh, this chapter is about considering games that, quote, frequently place players on the defensive in lawless worlds where both non-human nature and people are dangerously unpredictable. Um, so, yeah, right, like this, again, right, we get uh, a term, which is collapse, and several meanings of that term get folded over each other. So these are games that are simultaneously uh, where you're playing in a moment post-collapse, like post-collapse of something. Um, actually, weirdly enough, the game Silent Hill gets checked here, gets name-checked here as a game uh, of collapse, which I don't, like, I think I understand the thinking there because there's there's uh, something going on in Silent Hill where kind of like the evil, quote-unquote, hostile environments um are very much kind of uh, rusted, uh, post-industrial kind of wastelands. Um, but at the same time, like, Silent Hill like, is underpinned by such a bizarre fantasy monster uh, mythology that I don't know what type of ecological thinking we're supposed to get out of out of those games. Um, uh, well, sometimes there's a hell creature, and it <laughs> bites you right on the tukus, <laughs> and you gotta do something about it. And you, and you gotta hit it with a hammer. Right, but <laughs> like, that's sort of the, the, the sort of other follow-through is that, you know, these games that happen post-collapse, where uh, suddenly all the, all the strictures of society are gone, and you have to survive, and this is actually yeah. where we get a discussion of, like, survival games, and uh, also god games, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. Games about yeah. the maintenance of systems. Yeah, there, this chapter uh, opens, or in one of its first pages, uh, opens with a quote, like a, like a, I mean, it's a, it's a thesis statement for the chapter. Uh, I was about to create like some terminology here, but it's just her literally stating what the chapter is going to be about. It's on 198. She says, uh, what we need is a way to carry on and find productive modes of being even in a compromised situation. And so these, the games that are discussed here and the methods that are, um, that are being discussed here are um, a version. She's in conversation with Donna Haraway staying with the trouble. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we, we are already running long, so I don't have time to, to give a long treatise on how I feel about that. But, mm-hmm. but that's the basic idea here, right? Is that um, the, these are games that are negotiating a complicated space of, of having to deal with the environment in some way. And uh, very purposefully are not just about like ignoring it or not just about like living your deepest, darkest fantasies of like accumulation and violence, right? They are about productive modes of being that, that mm-hmm. might make for um, uh, reflective experiences that you might have. So you're talking about God games. I think this is where From Dust shows up again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kotaku editor, Kotaku editor in chief Stephen Totello gets like two full pages <laughs> dedicated to him to his read of uh, From Dust, which is which was uh, interesting. Um, but uh, we get a kind of of uh, the ethic behind that too of these productive modes of being uh, is the uh, discussion of failure that that was. Um, Produced, I think this relationship was produced out of uh, uh, QGCon, um, uh, where they put Jack Halberstam and, and Jesper Yule in conversation with one another, both talking about failure, where Halberstam is talking about the queer art of failure, and Jesper Yule is talking about failure in games. And mm-hmm. so there, there's the idea here from, from uh, 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 Cheng that, the, um, that we need to figure out how to live. Games can help us figure out how to live. Games are, are helpful because they give us possible fail states, but in that failure, give us the opportunity to try different options out and try different modes of living out. And even realizing that uh, failing is perfectly fine and sometimes you have to like use that failure to pivot to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, this is something that shows up, you know, this is like, in some ways, a key gamer idea, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is the whole... Go go to any forum about Dark Souls, and you're going to see the exact same argument being being levied in different terms, right? I don't think they're going to think it's very queer in a general sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know they're not going to couch it in that way. But the idea that that games give you the capability to move through something and become better at it or practice at it, or give you multiple reflective instances and therefore experience in it, I think that's a kind of a, a key gamer claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, that key gets, gamer claim. Key, uh, uh, chop 100 key gamer claims number <laughs> number 99 they're fail good. upward <laughs> yeah number 98 fail upward number 97 use the parry button <laughs> n- n- number n- number 88 dig a hole behind yourself so you don't get knocked back when you hit the rock <laughs> Uh, these, are, these are our core gamer claims but yeah so yeah. that's all to say um uh uh she so she kind of lays these systems out and then says this is on 190 quote what follows is a kind of secular eschatology of environmental end times as seen through the popular culture of games so it's a way of seeing environmental collapse um through how games reflect on it and then trying to work backwards to some ways, some lessons we can learn out of those games and maybe some methodological ways of thinking out of those games. And that's a big chunk of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's that. Um, there's also a reading of the cataclysm expansion in world mm-hmm. of Warcraft, which explicitly took a, uh, you know, environment that the, that players knew were deeply familiar with, ha- had mm-hmm. become very familiar with over the past 
however many years WoW was into its run uh, by the time Cataclysm happened. And then a big old dragon flew around and uh, caused a whole bunch of destruction and changed the environment in such a way that made people, like the players, nostalgic for how things used to be to the extent that there were like uh, memorial videos for mm -hmm. changed uh, environments on YouTube. Yeah. And yeah. that actually is a kind of a, she, she doesn't really discuss it. I don't, I don't think she discusses it, but it's kind of a big motivator for wild classic too, is mm -hmm. just seeing and experiencing these places since before cataclysm happened. So yeah, absolutely. Right. So um, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I, I yeah, this is another chapter where kind of the the micro movements are perhaps if you think this idea is interesting, then you should just read this chapter because there are a lot of kind of small pieces of the argument or little kind of like um like singular versions of the argument that kind of get made through several different examples. Um there's a long time spent here with the Mary Ann Doan essay um uh information crisis catastrophe that, that's an essay that i teach regularly mm -hmm. um i really like that essay i think i think if you think if you were just interested in the relationship between mediation and how we think of catastrophe in society it is it, worth reading it's about the uh the challenger explosion and uh about like how that got mediated via television um, and then how we understood how catastrophe happened through the medium. It's a fascinating, fascinating piece. Very, it's mm -hmm. complicated, but worth worth getting through. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's sort of part of the... So that's nested in this chapter in uh, this larger kind of argument about two things that I actually feel like are very distinct, but which um, Chang connects, uh, which is uh, PVE, play styles, mm -hmm. player versus in, uh, environment play styles, and ins indestructible environments. I understand mm -hmm. why that connection is being made, um, but I don't quite buy the way that, like, they're, they're kind of put forward here as the same thing in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. That, like, when you're doing PvE play, uh, the natural outgrowth from that is that you want to do the weird battlefield for a mechanic where you can blow up a dam, mm -hmm. um, which I think, I think... Like, I understand that connection. I wish it had more space to kind of be parsed out, if only because PvE to me has historically meant, like, I don't want to deal with other people. <laughs> like, whatever it is I'm doing, I just do not give a crap about who else is playing this game. Yeah, it's a theory. Uh, I, I think PvA, I, I experience in a similar way, right? It is a theory of the relationship to the environment. And it's a theory of the social. And she is concerned about the theory of the environment, not the theory of the social um, right. And, and yeah, I think most people, right, when you sit down and play World of Warcraft, when you're making decisions about PvE versus PvP, um, right, you're, you're making choices about how much do I want to deal with the, the player, right? like the P thing, it, less that uh, I love the E version or I love the violence <laughs> against the E. Um, yeah. I hate the violence against the P. This is, <laughs> this is my new... This is Players my new, are like, sacred. This is my new, yeah, exactly. The devil exactly this is like my new self-help book where i like like elaborate i have a big elaborate system of like different ways of talking about this but all right that's a I, it's interesting analysis and and i do understand why you would write about those things because it's just so good to be able to say player versus environment when you're writing a book about ecology yes <laughs> like it, it's is. So, it it's is. so it really is so you know that's the that's the kind of thing you write a book for so i get it yeah. um uh, and then there, the, so after that yeah then we move into, I think, the permadeath discussion. 
yeah, there's a discussion of permadeath that kind of leads over from from a similar thing. Um, she really leans into kind of species thinking for permadeath. So so for her, the permadeath has a politics. And, and permadeath, right, if you're not familiar, it just means when you play a game, she actually uses Tommy Roos's definition um, of permadeath, which I think is amazing. Um, <laughs> and I, I forgot to, I need to, I, I've, uh, Tommy was a, you know, a video game blogger years and years ago was certainly one of the blogs that I was reading when I first started writing about video games on the internet. And so I'm not sure if he knows about this, but I, I, I'll send him an email uh, to say that he really kind of gets some some big space here. Um, but, but looking at kind of roguelikes and permadeath uh, here uh, in the chapter in order to talk about uh, what we get out of it. And her argument is that what we get out of permadeath games, which are games in which you exist as one life and you play until you die and that character is gone, um, what we get out of that is kind of species thinking where we can see in aggregate what everyone is doing and how that kind of uh, does something as opposed to like individual death. So she says, you know, while we might be experiencing that game as permadeath of single life, uh, permadeath as an apparatus gives us bigger thought. On 233 or 223, she says, permadeath games are ideally suited to dramatizing struggles for collective and not just individual survival. So for example, if you go and you look um, to see uh, what clears look like, right? What ascendancies look like in Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup, that gives you an, a model for survival of the world. And so she kind of even takes this and then transforms some kind of basic rules around permadeath to think about what would it look like to do permadeath of an environment. She talks about the game Eco, but but says that that ultra, if we think of the, these kind of what we can learn from permadeath and then we place that in the um, uh, context of environment, then we can actually start thinking ecologically in a pretty productive way because we can start thinking of, this is similar to the, the uh, uh, what we were talking about at the beginning of the chapter, um, it allows us to experiment in productive and useful ways uh, about how we relate to our digital and actual dirt dirt space environments. Mm-hmm. People like to say meat space, and I don't like it. I like dirt space. There's more dirt think, than meat. I was going to say, dirt space is, is good, I think. And meat becomes dirt, so... <laughs> on a lo- <laughs> You're Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> like, on a long enough timeline... All meat becomes dirt. <laughs> oh, man. When are we going to get our season of True Detective, huh? I know. Good. G- they keep giving it to everybody. God. <laughs> I've read Ligotti. I can do it. Yeah, exactly. I read Eugene Thacker. Any big thoughts at the end of the book, Michael? Not especially. Uh, I, like I said, I think this book... Um, the the sort of upfront claim is not one that I disagree with. I think it's a very interesting claim. Um, and then I feel like, you know, the the rest of the book is just sort of dedicated to unspooling that claim in various directions. And some of those were directions that I was very interested in. And some of them, like the ARG chapter, was not one particularly, because I think ARGs are very boring. Uh, and then there are some, like the Silent Hill example, that I wanted to hear a whole lot more about. So that's kind of... And it's it's a it's an interesting book precisely for that reason because there are so many examples and so many uh points like little signposts to other examples that are sort of like brought in very briefly but uh don't really get unpacked or get all the kind of time because uh the the overriding project here is just showing like hey you you think this game doesn't have anything to do with ecology think again buddy mm-hmm Right. Like that's yeah. kind of that's kind of what's going on here. So, yeah. 
So, Michael, uh, we don't know what the next book is, correct? Uh, no, we do not. Not as of yet. So keep a, keep an eye on our Twitter for that, uh, twitter.com slash range touch. Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to uh, support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, that's big and helpful and, and really, uh, helps us out now that the, the unfortunately named big historians, has um, has <laughs> has now poisoned me when the word big appears. <laughs> I was going to say it's a big help, and I was going to immediately in my brain I thought unfortunately named big help. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so patreon.com slash range touch. Um, you can get our notes for three dollars a month, and uh, you can get access to a podcast and uh, extra let's play at five dollars a month. All kinds of cool stuff. Michael is starting a new show soon on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash range touch. Um, that uh, is all about his expertise. So I, I think uh, you, you'll enjoy that as, long, as well as all the other stuff that we're doing over there on YouTube as well. Hit the subscribe button. If you have listened all the way to the end of this episode and you haven't hit subscribe yet, please subscribe on some sort of service. Uh, if you're listening to a service that has a rating system such as uh, Apple Podcasts, please hit that five stars. It really helps us out in a big, serious, real way. You can find me on twitter.com at ckunzelman. Michael, is there anything that I'm forgetting? I do not think so. I think we're good. Take us out with the catchphrase. Remember, until next time, the social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>